0: Catechism, we read together Lord's Day 23. In many of the previous Lord's Days, we've been confessing our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith in the 12 articles, and now our catechism continues. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, I've never kept any of them and am still inclined to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin. And as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I'm acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. For only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who are you? Recently I discussed that question with my pre-confession class. We noted that many people define themselves by their race, their ethnic origin, their social standing, religion, education, occupation, sex, or family background. If I was to apply that to myself, I'd say that I am white, of Dutch origin, middle class, reformed, With a master of divinity, a pastor, a male, and part of the poppy family. Describing myself in that way might give you a sense of who I am. But all those things are ultimately labels. They don't really get to the heart of who I am. Many people struggle with their core identity. At times, we may see certain strengths in ourselves. We consider ourselves smart, strong or successful. But at other times, when we look at ourselves and our weaknesses and consider ourselves error-prone, a failure, weak and sinful. How we view ourselves often depends on what's happening in our lives. When things are going well for us, we view ourselves positively, but when we face struggles or sins, we view ourselves negatively. What we need to do is to find a core identity. Beloved, we're never going to find that in ourselves. We are fallen creatures who by nature are inclined to all evil. We need to take Paul's instruction in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 seriously. Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Instead, we need to put on Christ. We need to find our identity in him. Paul expresses this beautifully in Galatians 2, 19 and 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When we put on Christ, we are transformed. In Christ, we're no longer guilty, but cleansed. We're no longer sinners, but saints. We're no longer weak, but strong. The process of sharing in Christ is often described as our justification. To describe this, we often picture a courtroom. God is a judge. We are the accused. We're charged with being guilty of many sins. Christ is our lawyer or our advocate, and he pleads for us on the basis of his blood offered on the cross. The result of our trial is that the judge renders a verdict. He declares us not guilty. And thereby sets us free and grants us new life. This afternoon we're going to consider our identity in Christ. i summarize the gospel message for you under the following theme. I am purified by Christ's blood and thus have a good conscience before God. We'll consider my conscience accuses me, how my advocate intercedes for me, how the judge pardons me and the reward that awaits me. Beloved, can you make the statement, I am purified by the blood of Christ and thus have a good conscience before God? Do you believe that when God looks at you, he sees you in a positive light? Is that something you hold fast in all of life? What about those times when you ignore God, neglecting to read from his word and failing to pray to him? What about those times when you give in to temptation and you fall into various sins? What about when the Ten Commandments get read in church and you feel ashamed of something you've just done or said? Is guilt something that you face in your life? Guilt is a feeling people typically have after doing something wrong. A person's sense of guilt relates to their moral code. Many people in this world think it's okay for single adults to have sex together as long as it's consensual and no one gets hurt. And so they won't feel guilty about sleeping together with someone they met at the bar. That's different for us. Growing up as Christians... We know that God condemns sexual immorality. And so we would, f- we would feel guilty if we engaged in that kind of behavior. So, beloved, are there things in your life that you feel guilty about? Do you recognize your sins? Do you realize that they are offensive to our holy God? Or do you think that on the whole you're a pretty good person and that you do little to grieve God with your sins. I think that at times we do a pretty good job of ignoring our sins or of minimizing them. We compare ourselves to those wicked people in society around us and we think we're actually living pretty decent lives. But beloved, if that's your perspective on yourself, you're deluding yourself. Think about the time when Jesus called the tax collector Levi to be one of his disciples. Levi hosted a great feast at his house. He invited Jesus along with a large company of tax collectors and others to recline at table with him. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled that Jesus would eat together with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus responded, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Beloved, each one of us needs to recognize our sinfulness, our need for a Saviour to redeem us. What do you think that the person, beso- the person sitting beside you in church would think of you if they knew that everything you said and did this past week? What if they knew your inner thoughts, all the feelings and the desires of your heart, Would you be comfortable with someone else examining you in that kind of way? That's how God knows us. He knows wherever we go and whatever we do. He sees us when we're in public and also when we're in private. He observes not only the things we say and do wrong. God knows our inner thoughts. He knows the intents of our heart. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He's the one who evaluates us and judges us. Nothing escapes his scrutiny. How can we ever stand before him? How can we be right in his sight? Certainly not on the basis of our own merits. Paul addresses this point in Romans 3. He makes clear no one is righteous before God. He says, none is righteous, not one. One. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's a damning indictment on the human race. We're all sinful people. We've all offended God by our sins. We all deserve to come under his judgment. God not only brings this message to us in his word, he also brings the message home to us in our hearts. Often he does that through our conscience. Our catechism begins by speak, begins speaking about how we're justified, how we're made right with God, by talking about our conscience. It, says, it speaks about how my conscience accuses me. I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments. I've never kept any of them. And I'm still inclined to all evil. To understand what the Catechism is saying, we need to know what our conscience is. Our conscience is a self-observing, self-judging capacity that enables us to consider the rightness or wrongness of our actions, our words, our thoughts, and feelings. It's an inner voice that speaks up, telling us the difference between right and wrong. In comic strips, you sometimes see someone struggling what struggling to do what's right. There'll be a picture of a little devil on the one side, enticing that person to do what's wrong. And then there's a picture of an angel on the other side, often with a halo above it, representing our conscience, directing that person to do what's right. Now, our conscience is not a perfect guide Often our conscience is shaped by the family we grew up in and by the society we live in. If you grew up in a family where it's normal for people to lie, your conscience might not bother you when you lie. And if you grew up in circumstances where it was okay to be angry and to lash out at others, you may react with anger and aggression in your dealings with others. Our conscience is only a good guide when it's molded, when it's shaped by God's word and spirit. Yet most of us have been brought up in Christian families. We've come to know the gospel. We have a pretty good idea of how God expects us to live in thankfulness and holiness before him. Our catechism is not speaking to unbelievers or to those who have rejected the gospel. It speaks to believers, to those who belong to Jesus Christ with body and soul. And so when it speaks about our conscience, it's speaking about the conscience that we as children of God have, a conscience that knows the difference between right and wrong. So, beloved, what happens when you sin? Are you comfortable doing so? It can happen that we try to put our conscience to sleep, push away at that nagging thought that what we're doing is wrong. We try to silence the inner voice so we can go ahead and do what we want. If we repeatedly sin in a specific way, we can sear our conscience. By stifling its warnings, we can reach the point where our conscience no longer bothers us when we commit certain sins. And for most of us, our conscience is a positive force in our life. It warns us not to sin. It accuses us when we do. Now, beloved, that's a healthy thing. Think of the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector we read together from Luke 18. The Pharisee trusted in himself that he was righteous. When he prayed, he did so with a proud and a contemptuous heart. He didn't see himself as a sinful person. He looked down his nose at that tax collector whom he considered to be a terrible sinner. The tax collector was aware of his own sins and shortcomings, The result was that he humbled himself before God. He pleaded, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When Jesus told this parable to the crowds of his day, they would have had a positive perspective on the Pharisee. They saw the Pharisees as moral, law-abiding men. They would have been shocked when Jesus told them it was the tax collector who went home justified and not the Pharisee. The lesson for us is plain, beloved. We need to be aware of our many sins and shortcomings. We need to call on our Father in heaven each day, confessing our sins and praying for forgiveness. Unless we see our need for a Savior, we will never turn to Christ. Brings us to our second point, how my advocate intercedes for me. Recognizing our sins and confessing them before God is an important step in our justification. Yet in order to understand how we are made righteous before God, we need to go further. The question of how we can be made acceptable to God is the question of the ages. Every world religion deals with this fundamental question. There's only two possible answers. It's either by our own works or by the works of another When you consider the major world religions, they all say that we can be made right with God through our own efforts. Buddhism teaches the need to follow an eight-step plan to reach nirvana, the state of bliss. Islam has developed Shiara law, a fixed code of behavior all Muslims must follow. Judaism taught the need to live according to the law of Moses. In each of these religions, your blessedness in a life to come is dependent on what you do in this life. The only exception to this is the Christian faith. We say that we are not made righteous before God through our own works. Our catechism teaches us that it is in Christ that we are made righteous before God. The righteousness that I have before God is not my own. It's not something I've earned, that I've accomplished through my own good deeds. It is a gift of grace. So, how does Jesus make it possible for God to accept us, sinful people that we are? To understand this, we need to go back to the example of the courtroom. We know, beloved, that one day every person who has ever lived will need to stand before the judgment seat of God, will appear as people charged with many sins and shortcomings and will not be able to argue against these charges. Often, in our secular courts, when someone's charged with a crime, his or her lawyer will urge them to plead not guilty and will introduce every bit of evidence possible to prove that we didn't do anything wrong. That simply won't work before the judgment seat of God. Both God and we will know we're guilty of every single thing that God charges us with. Yet, we don't have to appear before God on our own. A defense lawyer represents us. He pleads our cause for us. Jesus doesn't argue that we never sinned. He doesn't try to make the point that we're innocent of any wrongdoing against God. Instead, he intercedes for us in a different way. As our advocate, he argues that all our many sins have been paid for by his blood. Jesus' defense is not that we never committed any sins. It is that he has borne God's wrath against our sins on the cross. John summarizes the point for us beautifully in the first verses of 1 John 2. He writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's for this precise purpose that Jesus became man so that he could reconcile us. To the Father. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews speaks at length about how Christ came to serve as our advocate to intercede for us. In Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, he says that Jesus Christ was made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation, payment for the sins of the people. In chapter 4, he comforts us saying. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so he encourages us to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. At times we may feel like we're not worthy of having Jesus intercede for us, we may feel discouraged by the sorrows and the struggles of life. We may feel a million miles removed from God and think, why should the almighty and infinite creator of the universe bother with little tiny me? We may feel terribly guilty of falling into the same sin again and think, I'm not worthy of God's grace. But The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 7 verse 24, That Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, for he always lives to make intercession for them. Beloved, do you know Christ that way? As your advocate at the Father's right hand? Do you believe that when you approach the throne of grace with a humble and contrite heart, God will hear and answer your prayers for Christ's sake? Remember Jesus' words in John 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus suffered and died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. That's why it is In Christ, only in Christ, that we are made righteous before God. Brings us to our third point, how the judge pardons me. Let's go back to the courtroom. We've seen how we appear before God as people guilty of many sins and shortcomings. But Christ pleads our cause. He intercedes for us before the Father, arguing all our sins are covered by his blood. So what decision does God as judge make about us? Well, in any court case, there's two possible outcomes. A judge can either declare us guilty, or he can declare us not guilty. God's verdict in the heavenly courtroom is that he declares us not guilty. Here we see what justification really is. It is to be declared righteous before the throne of God. That is what God does for his beloved children. He makes a formal declaration stating, we're not guilty in his eyes. How could that ever happen? We know we're guilty of so many sins. There's so many things in each of our lives that we've done wrong. Our sins are almost numberless. Because of them, we deserve to come under God's judgment to suffer condemnation. How is it possible that God, a righteous judge, would ever declare us not guilty of our sins? Beloved God declares us sinful people righteous through Christ alone. Paul writes in Romans 3 that a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. He says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In Ephesians Ephesians 2, Paul declares, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast only by God's grace in Christ that we are declared righteous before Him. You see, beloved Christ accomplished our salvation for us. He came into this world as a sinless person. He lived a perfect life. He presented Himself to God as a sacrifice for our sins. He went the way of the cross, rejected by men, suffering great agony and shame. By doing so, Christ bore the wrath of God against our sins. With his body and blood, he paid the price for our sins so that God could declare us righteous and holy in him. Our catechism gives us a really rich perspective on who we are in Christ. It says that God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, Imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Note carefully, God credits us with the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. In other words, Christ's payment is mine. Christ's righteousness, His uprightness, is mine. His holiness, his sinlessness is mine. How is that possible? Our catechism explains God's grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience that Christ has rendered for me. The point, beloved, is this God looks at us through the blood of Christ. Our salvation is by grace alone. It's a gift given to us because of what Christ has done for us. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. This changes our perspective on who we are. We know that by nature we're sinful people deserving to come under God's wrath. Yet by God's grace, He has allowed us to share in Christ and His merits. When we put on Christ, we are transformed. In Christ, we're no longer guilty, but cleansed. We read together from Hebrews 10, about how Christ has opened the way for, to God for us through his flesh offered on the cross. And because of that, the writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The result is we can say, I am purified by Christ's blood, and I have a good conscience before God. Brings us to our final point, the reward that awaits me. Our Lord's Day began with an important question. It asked, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? This? All this refers to everything that we confess in the Apostles' Creed. It refers to the works of the Father in our creation, the Son in our redemption, and the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Basically, the question is asking, what does it benefit you now that you believe in the triune God who has made himself known to you in the Bible? And the answer is, in Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting We focus most of our attention this afternoon to what it means to be declared righteous before God. We've seen that in Christ we have a new identity, and that this transforms our lives. In Christ, God views us as his holy and beloved people. In Christ, he has claimed us as his own. We belong to him. We've been restored to covenant fellowship with God. Yet what our catechism makes clear is that God's blessings apply not just to this life, but also to the life to come. Earlier, we used the example of a courtroom to explain justification. We saw of how Christ intercedes for us, and of how on the basis of his redeeming work, God declares us not guilty of our sins. Beloved, this is something that will actually take place on the final day on the day of judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our Comfort, our assurance is that in Christ we'll be found righteous before God, also on the day of judgment. And the result is that instead of facing everlasting condemnation, Instead of suffering the torments of hell, we will be united to Christ. We will share in his blessings. Because of Christ's redeeming work, we are heirs of life everlasting. We'll be allowed to share in the joy and glory of living with our Savior on new heavens and a new earth. That's the reward God has promised to all who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and and Lord. Many people, beloved, struggle with their identity. They seek to find their life in their own smarts or strength or success, but they don't know who they really are or what their purpose in life is. For us, that's different. We can find our identity in Jesus Christ. Take hold of the promises of God Make them your own by faith alone. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins, that he rose to grant you new life in him. Then you'll be able to say, I'm purified by Christ's blood. I have a good conscience before God. That comfort, that assurance, will help you to live a joyful and thankful life before God. Amen. Let's rise and sing our praises with the words of Psalm 130, stanzas 2 and 4.